Welcome to the Get in the Fight podcast. My name is Nate Whitson, and I'm the founder of Get in the Fight Ministries and our exclusive online fight club for Christian men. Everything we do here is dedicated to helping Christian men become the men that God meant for them to be. So if you're looking for helpful content and conversations that can help you to grow and become the man that God made you to be, then you're in the right place. But before we get started, please do me a huge favor and be sure to subscribe, click the like button, and then leave us a five-star review. Doing that helps us to reach more men who are looking for content just like this. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our mission and how to get involved or how to join the Fight Club, then head on over to getinthefight.club. That's getinthefight.club and learn more today. But without further ado, it's time to get in the fight. So let's go. Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Nate Whitson, and this is the Get in the Fight podcast. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to this podcast, then welcome. This is really primarily for Christian men who want to live better lives, bigger lives, and walk that path of becoming the man that God meant for you to be. Figuring that out, like, what are you here for? What did God make you in particular for? What did he have in mind? And so we're, we're pursuing that in our lives, and we're doing it in a community of other men that want to be more like Jesus. They want to be more like him. They want to uh, live life to the fullest. They want to uh, grow and uh, be more of the men that they know deep inside they have within them, but maybe haven't quite expressed like they need to. Maybe they've fallen off the wagon completely. Maybe your journey is similar to mine, where if you listen to episodes one through four of the Get in the Fight podcast, you'll hear some of my own journey of really kind of getting out of the fight completely for, for being great, for pursuing God with everything. And I still don't do that perfect. This isn't a place for perfect. This is just a place for everyday average Christian men who simply want to re-engage in that fight. So if that's you, welcome, and we're glad that you're here. Today, we're continuing a series of podcasts that we started really in episode number 23, where I went through the introduction of a book called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog by Admiral William H. McRaven. He's also authored a few other books, one called Make Your Bed and another called Sea Stories, and they're both excellent. If you haven't listened to episode number 24 or 23, it's okay. This isn't a book where you have to have read the previous chapter in order to catch on to the next. He really is taking his life experience and breaking down these key leadership principles there, and they're excellent. Excellent stuff. Again, if you go to my website, getinthefight.club, and you click on the Amazon store, you can find his books there. There's a link there. It's an affiliate link, so all of that helps to support our ministry a little bit. Or you can just go to any you know, Amazon store or whatever and, and pick that up. But the book is awesome. I highly encourage you to read The Wisdom of the Bullfrog. Some of the stories are just incredible. I'm really just kind of like skimming the top, giving you just a little bit of it. But really taking, you know, taking what I have learned from it, sharing it with you in hopes that maybe you, know, you will grow and become more of the man that God made you to be. So you might want to grab a pen and paper. You might want to pause this at different times and write down key thoughts or ideas that, that uh, really challenge or, or grow you. And if you like this podcast, do me a favor and just share it. There's other men that you think could grow from this, are challenged by it like you might be, then share that with somebody else today. All right. So in the, in the episode number 24, we went through the first six chapters. We're going to cover six more today starting at chapter number seven that Admiral McRaven titled Sua Sponte. And going to the book, I want to read a little bit about what that means. 
Hill number 205 seemed an unlikely place for an army legend to be born. After MacArthur's landing at Incheon on September 15, 1950, U.S. forces began to rout the North Korean army, pushing them well above the 38th parallel, almost to the Yalu River on the border with China. With the success of the Americans and the collapse of the North Koreans, some experts believed the war would be over soon. As the 25th Infantry Division pressed the fight toward the Kiryong River in the north, victory seemed imminent. But to the surprise of MacArthur and the U.S. military, Chinese intervention would change all of that. On November 25, 1950, a small contingent of army rangers were directed to take and hold a vital piece of terrain just south of the river. Unbeknownst to them, the Chinese 39th Army had massed a huge force to defend the hill. The rangers, led by First Lieutenant Ralph Puckett, began to make their way across an open field toward the high ground that was Hill Number 205. As the rangers maneuvered toward the hill, the Chinese opened up with a barrage of mortars, machine gun fire, and small arms fire. With his men completely exposed, Puckett called in American artillery to suppress the incoming mortar rounds, but the Chinese machine gunners and mortarmen were camouflaged in gun pits and hard to locate. He had to find a way to pinpoint the Chinese gunners before the rangers could return accurate fire. Puckett, who had positioned himself at the front of the advancing rangers, knew there was only one thing he could do. With complete disregard for his own life, Ralph Puckett rose from his foxhole and dashed out into the open field, forcing the Chinese to take aim at the young lieutenant. As the machine gunners began to fire at the sprinting Puckett, the rangers spotted their positions and engaged them. Puckett returned to his foxhole only to catch his breath, then leaped out and ran into the open again and then again. With each dash by Puckett into the exposed terrain, the rangers were able to isolate and destroy more enemy machine gunners. Having suppressed the small arms fire, the rangers proceeded to take Hill Number 205. History would show that over the next two days, the rangers under the command of Ralph Puckett would fight off wave after wave of Chinese assaults that took the lives of 10 rangers and left 31 wounded, including Puckett. For his actions leading up to and capturing Hill 205, Ralph Puckett would be awarded with the Medal of Honor. Puckett would go on to serve in Vietnam where he would receive the nation's second highest honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, and two silver stars. Years later, when recalling the heroism of Lieutenant Puckett running across the open field, one of his soldiers said, it needed to be done and someone needed to do it. The Rangers have a Latin saying, sua sponte. It means, of your own accord. In other words, doing what needs to be done without being told to do so. There's often the misguided belief that soldiers only follow orders, but the strength of the American military is that the great soldiers, the truly great leaders, do what is right without being told. They do what's right to protect their men and women. They do what is right to uphold the reputation of their unit. They do what is right to bring honor to their country. They do what needs to be done, whether ordered to do so or not. This sense of initiative separates the great leaders from the mediocre ones. No one ordered Ralph Puckett to run with reckless abandon into the open field, but someone had to do it. Someone had to do it. And the thought was, why not me? Why not me was really the motivating question for Ralph Puckett. And he daringly, I don't even know if that's like the strongest word we could use, like he, yeah, just so bravely runs out. I mean, this is like the movies, right? But this guy's living this. Can you imagine being in a foxhole with machine guns blasting at you? 
but feeling like somebody needs to be able to figure out how are we going to know where these people are pinned down at so that we can return fire to them. And Ralph Puckett says, why not me? This is such an amazing story to me of the mindset of a great man and a great leader. Why not me is such an easy phrase that again, you may want to write down that you may want to just file away as that motivating message to yourself to say, look, something needs to be done. And rather than looking around, why not me? Why am I always the one who's looking for somebody else to do the things that are right in front of me that I could do right now? Well, the reason is a lot of times for me personally is I'm lazy, can be selfish. I can think I've already done my work for the day. Now it's somebody else's turn, right? Like when you come home from work and the house is a mess and you've already been working all day long, imagine if you came back though and said, why not me? It's my house. I'm the leader. It's my family. This is a blessing. Why not me? But instead we tend to say, why not you? Why are you not doing this stuff? And you know what? To be honest with you, the things that really drive me crazy in my house are little things. It's, it's messes. I wish my kids were better at picking up after themselves or following through. And, you know, I like a clean space. And when it's not clean, it kind of drives me crazy to be honest. But why don't I just do it? Well, part of it, again, is I do want my kids to be hardworking. I do want them to learn to pick up after themselves and all of that. But to be honest with you, there's just so many times that I let my house get stressed out because I just put the blame on somebody else. But if I embraced this and said, why not me? I bet my life would be better. I bet my house would be happier and less stressful. You know, when your wife gets on your nerves and you feel like, you know, you shouldn't have to be the one to apologize. Imagine if you had this sua sponte in you of saying like, it's up to me. I should be the one. Why shouldn't it be me? Why not me? You know, when it comes to apologizing and, and asking for forgiveness. When something needs to happen at work and you've already, you know, been busting your butt and you look around and other people aren't doing their job, what if you just said, you know what, I'm going to do it. Why not me? Can you imagine the impact that it would have if Christian men took on and embraced sua sponte? Can you imagine if we just did what was right? Can you imagine what it would look like if we just did the things that need to be done? Imagine if we had men that just did the things that nobody else wanted to do. Imagine if we just embraced the idea of why not me? That's the powerful lesson of sua sponte. In chapter number eight, moving forward here, it's titled who dares wins. And I guess what I want you to do right now is just think about some great leaders that you've been around, or maybe that you've read about like William McRaven. I've never met him, but I know he's one of the best leaders that I've read and heard stories from, but just think for yourself for a minute here about some great leaders that you know, or have heard of what separates good leaders from great ones. In many cases, I think it's likely that the great ones had this daring spirit about themselves, that they were willing to take on daring ideas, maybe daring missions or took on daring situations that just took a lot of courage. But does that mean that we should just simply take chances? Is that what it means to be daring? You know, should we just roll the dice and hope for success? Well, I, I don't think that's exactly it. In fact, going back to the book, I want to read just a portion of this chapter to you. 
because I think it, it really hits it on the head. In the three weeks leading up to the bin Laden raid, the team, talking about the special forces team, spent 75% of their time planning the mission. We had extensive intelligence on the Pakistani integrated air defenses, the police, the military, the terrain, the weather, and bin Laden's compound. The plan we had devised had 165 phases in which we identified every training requirement, every piece of equipment needed, every intelligence shortfall, and every possible contingency. We tried to leave nothing to chance, even though we understood that chance and uncertainty part of every mission. Where we couldn't properly assess the risk because the intelligence was incomplete, was Bin Laden's compound booby trap, for example? Did he have an escape route underground? We developed plans to deal with each of these contingencies the best that we could. At one point in the mission, the lead MH-60 Blackhawk helicopter crashed into Bin Laden's compound when the down blast from the blades created a vortex or a vacuum over the helicopter and it lost lift. But owing to the extensive planning we had conducted, there was a backup helicopter not far behind. A downed helicopter was a calculated risk that we had anticipated and were prepared for. After the mission was completed and Bin Laden's remains were buried at sea, the world woke up to a jubilant America. Justice had been served. The president was rightfully applauded for his boldness, his willingness to take on risk on uncertain intelligence. When pressed about his decision, the president remarked that while the confidence level on Bin Laden being in the compound was only 50%, he had 100% confidence in the SEALs, Hilo crews, and intelligence professionals who were conducting the mission. The president's decision to go was as analytical as it was bold. When we look across history at the great risk takers in business, entertainment, sports, the arts, or the military, we see that each of these men and women understood that in every risk, there is an opportunity. The opportunity exists because the risk seemed high, and others, those without the confidence to move forward, were too fearful to venture into a particular space. And yet, for every successful man and woman, there are 10,000 failures. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. And if you are, please do us a huge favor and be sure to subscribe, click the like button, and then leave us a five-star review. It only takes a few seconds to do this, but it makes a huge difference for us, and it helps us to reach more men who are looking for content just like this. Thanks so much for listening and helping us out. Now back to the show. When it comes to daring greatly, we must be wise, but we also have to have this default mechanism within us that defaults to aggressive, as Jocko Willing says, or defaults to go. My default tends to be, if I'm honest, passive, <laughs> where I'm thinking, okay, there's a lot of risk here, and it can really stall me out at times. But I know that over the last several years in particular, I've really tried to default to go. For example, I get really nervous uh, to sing. I'm a part of our worship team, and I get nervous to play and sing in front of people. like very nervous, very self-conscious. And I remember not too long ago, the worship leader, who's a good friend of ours, had asked me to sing some part of a song. And my first reaction is just a gut-wrenching no. <laughs> but I had been challenged in these thoughts like this to just say, I'm, I'm going to try to default to say yes. I'm going to take on challenges like that. And, and even though you know, the music may or may not be great that I do. The issue was really that it does something to embolden leadership and discipline and strengthen me 
by taking on something and just defaulting to, yeah, I'll figure it out. So having a default to yes, or a default to go, or a default to aggressive is really what this is about. Like who dares wins is about having that internal decision-making process already pre-decided for you that I'm going to take on hard things. I'm not going to be timid. I'm not going to be afraid, but I'm also, and I think this is key. I'm also going to be as planned out and prepared as possible, right? Let's say it's the music thing again. I am going to be a nervous wreck, no doubt, but I'm also going to be prepared. I could play through that song and sing through it, you know, a hundred times before we got to Sunday. Being as prepared as possible is also a part of good risk taking. And I think that that goes into it. Yes, dare greatly, but yes, plan for things. Yes, prepare as much as you can. I think this also means that you have to be aware that you are going to fail. You absolutely will fail. When you take risk, it means that there's opportunity, but you don't always win those. You're going to fall down. Leaders are those that embrace mistakes as learning opportunities though. The, the mindset of a great leader versus a, a mediocre one is that they take it on with planning, with preparation, with daring, but they also understand that they're in it to learn. They're in it to grow. And I, and I think that's key. So we're talking about just being a better man, being a better leader and winning comes down to getting up when you fail. Winning comes down over time to how well you lose along the way. You're gonna lose, you're going to fall, but never let a fall define who you are for the future. If you wanna be great, then you've gotta dare greatly. And, and I think that's key for us. So who dares wins. Chapter nine, moving on, hope is not a strategy. Going back to the book here, he says, there's some debate over the origin of the quote, hope is not a strategy. I first heard it when I was a young SEAL lieutenant in 1985. I made the mistake of telling my boss that after all of our planning and training, I hoped the mission would go well. He quickly pounced on me and said that if hope was my strategy, the mission would likely fail. He sent me back to the planning room to ensure that I had addressed all of the risk factors. Some have attributed the quote to Vince Lombardi. The coach was the quintessential taskmaker and left nothing to chance when building his game plans for the Green Bay Packers. In 2001, there was a best-selling book by Rick Page entitled, Hope is Not a Strategy, The Six Keys to Winning the Complex Sale. It was a business book, but the implication for any leader with a vision was just the same. You must put in the hard work of turning the vision into a plan, a plan that had milestones and measurables and produced results. For McChrystal, hope was important for our success because it inspired the troops to action, but hope without proper planning was just dreaming. I have used this quote that hope is not a strategy many times in my own line of work. So when I sit down and work with clients and they're talking about financial planning in particular, we'll talk about their future and their hopes and their dreams and all of that. And that word quickly comes out of initial conversations. What are you hoping for post-retirement? What do you want it to look like? And it's really interesting that we will talk through that. It always have to come back to, well, what's the plan? Because we know that hope is not a strategy. We know that just saying, I'm just going to roll the dice and get there and hope it works out. That's not a plan. That is just dreaming. And so I have looked at this quote many times. I've never really thought about where it comes from. I just know intrinsically that it's true. Hope is important. 
and hope is good. But in financial planning, and in fact, in all of life, it's just simply not a good strategy. Going back to the book, Admiral McRaven says, never underestimate the power of hope. Hope is what inspires. Hope is what encourages. Hope is what empowers. And without hope, nothing worthwhile can be accomplished. But hope alone is just wishful thinking. Pair hope with a sound strategy, a detailed plan, and a lot of hard work. And then nothing is out of reach. I think he's totally right on. It makes me think that this quote from Andy Stanley that I think is so applicable here, where he says, direction, not intention, or not hope in this case, determines your destinations. So again, direction, not intentions, determine destinations. You will end up somewhere in life and your intentions really don't matter at all. You, you don't end up somewhere based on intentions. You end up somewhere based on the direction that you're heading and the steps that you take. And so hope, again, is just not a good strategy. If you're going to be a leader, then you need to focus on what you're going to do. In fact, in our fight club, we will see guys just be honest and, and um, share struggles and things that they're dealing with. And they will often use the language of hope and just say, you know, I'm really struggling with, you know, my language or I'm struggling with my eyes or whatever it is. And I just, I'm hoping that God will make me stronger. I've started to push back against that in our community and say, cool, that's awesome. Prayer is important and God will strengthen you. But what are you going to actually do? If you want to get up earlier and you're struggling to get up and you hope to do better there, cool. But what are you going to actually do? Are you going to set your alarm clock and put it 10 feet away from you rather than right next to you so that you don't hit the snooze? Can you put your shoes out in a water bottle and have it ready so that it's just ready to go as soon as you wake up, right? Like whatever it is that you want to accomplish as a leader, it isn't about hope. You know, you, people hope for a good marriage, but that doesn't make a good marriage. It's only the things that you put into the marriage that you actually do or work on that will get you where you want to go. People hope to have a lot of money, but if you don't actually save a little bit of it, you'll not have any in the future. People hope for success at work, but what if you actually, you know, are lazy and you don't learn or you don't work hard at what you do? If you don't do it with excellence, you're not going to be as successful. So hope encourages us and hope is important, but hope without a detailed plan is just dreaming. So I just want you to just think for a second, you know, what are some of the things that you are hoping for? More importantly, though, what are the plans that are in place? What strategies do you have in place to help you to achieve it? How clear is the plan to you? And in fact, how clear is the plan to those who are a part of that strategy? Do they even know it? Do they know what their part is to play in it? Just remember that if you've got hope, that's great, but it's not a very good strategy. Moving on to chapter 10, Admiral McRaven titled this chapter, No Plan Survives First Contact with the Enemy. Going back to the book, the story he shares in here is this. We were two minutes out. From the overhead video, I could see the twin Blackhawk helicopters screaming across the Pakistani landscape. Side doors open, Navy SEALs poised to fast rope into the Abbottabad compound that housed the most wanted man in the world, Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Inside my Afghanistan command center, I watched intently as the first helo created the 18-foot-high concrete wall 
and came to hover just beside the three-story building housing Bin Laden. As the pilot flared out, ready to drop the fast rope, I could see the helo begin to waffle. The nose pitched upward and the tail swayed awkwardly from right to left. Over the radio, I could hear the pilot struggling to gain control. Something was definitely wrong. Seconds later, the helo jerked violently forward, the tail swung wildly to the left, and the machine and men came crashing down into the outer courtyard, away from the planned landing spot. The pilot of the second helo, seeing the hard landing of the lead helicopter, banked quickly to the right and landed his seals outside the compound. Everything we had initially planned had gone south. Now the seals from the first helo were isolated in another area of the compound, unable to quickly get to their objectives. The seals from the second helo, who were supposed to be on the roof of the three-story building, were outside the compound, having to breach their way through several metal doors just to get back. Watching from inside the White House, the president and his staff were holding their collective breaths. At that moment, it seemed as if the success of the operation hung in the balance. But as dire as the situation may have appeared, I knew we had a plan to get the mission back on track. For three weeks prior to Operation Neptune Spear, the mission to get Osama bin Laden, the SEALs and helicopter planners went over every contingency possible, expecting that things might go wrong. Not only had the planners anticipated having to deviate from their insertion point, but they also had anticipated that we might need a backup helo just in case one or both aircraft went down. As planning would have it, the SEALs adjusted quickly and made their way to the compound. Within minutes, they had reached the third floor and killed bin Laden. At the same time, the air component commander moved the backup helo into position just in time to extract the SEALs and destroy the damaged Blackhawk. Within two hours, all the men were safely back in Afghanistan. Plan A had failed. Plan B and Plan C were executed to perfection. <laughs> no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Once you encounter the enemy or once you encounter trouble, no plan is going to survive first contact. It makes me think of the famous Mike Tyson quote that says, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. It's so true. You may think about taking on Mike Tyson. There's a lot of guys that got into the ring and thought, okay, I know he's strong. I know he's fast, but what if I do this? Or what if I do that? And then all of a sudden they found out that not only was he strong and fast, but his uppercut would knock you out. And so they had plans, but they didn't go according to plan. I, I am a planner and I think planning is important. I am a A plus B equals C kind of guy. I like the organized chaos of things, but the problem that we learn about today and the problem that we just know inherently is that plans don't always pan out. Plans don't always pan out. That's just true. Trouble comes. Murphy's law always seems to show up. So what can we learn from this leadership principle that Admiral McRaven talks about? Number one, consider worst case scenarios. What are they and what will you do? when or if it happens. I like that he talks about in there that we had planned for every contingency. In the previous story, they said they had 165 phases to this plan. I mean, you just think about the detail of it. There was a ton of risk, but they also had tons of calculated backup plans and ideas and strategies because they knew that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. They just, you expect trouble. And I think about that with Fight Club and conversations we have with men here. If you're in a fight with the devil, you are expecting a fight back. 
You expect it to be rough. You expect there to be trouble. And that has helped serve us so well by having these ongoing conversations to say, look, I'm going to try my best to wake up early and commit to being a man of honor and discipline and a man of strength, a man of joy. And then I'm going to fail like crazy. And we all do. That's just part of learning. But when we do, we get back up. We're not surprised when troubles come. So we consider these different scenarios and we expect them. We try to anticipate them the best that we can. Number two, does everyone involved know what the plan is and what part they play? Do you know what your part is? Do they know what their part is? You know, you, you've got to have a plan, but if there are more than one people involved in it, do they know, or are you just assuming that they do? That can get you in trouble as a leader. If you're just assuming that the other parties know. And again, this goes back to even just thinking when you have a plan and you say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And you communicate it once you might assume incorrectly that that's enough. And, and the reality is you've got to say things over and over and over. And it's even wise to have those people rehearse back to you what they heard and what their part is, but don't assume. And number three is to practice your plan and be prepared beyond just the first option. Have an idea of where you want to go, but just remember that no plan survives first contact. Things will go wrong. And so, you know, having a backup plan is just wise. I'm not a military man. I am just an everyday dude, but I recognize in these stories that war and life are both full of uncertainty. So whether or not you recognize or, you know, can relate to the war side of this as a leader, you simply can't predict everything that's going to happen along the way. But rather than doing nothing, you can act decisively in the midst of not knowing, take steps forward, have a plan, and then have a plan for when those things aren't going to work. After all, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So have a plan and be prepared. Chapter 11, moving on, is titled, It Pays to Be a Winner. This is a hilarious story actually in here that Admiral McRaven shares He's talking about being on a run and he is just exhausted. And so one of the things you know about Navy SEALs, if you've read any of their stories, is that they do tons and tons of calisthenics and push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups and all of that. And they're almost always followed by really long runs in the sand. And he's talking about one of these moments here where he's running, he's being pushed. There's an instructor that's running alongside him uh, and he's just reminding him, hey, it pays to be a winner. Don't forget it pays to be a winner. And he, and he goes on to just talk about how, you know, if you uh, win and you're in the top group or whatever, then your evolution is done and you might move on to something else. But if you lose, that group of losers has to run an extra mile after you've already been pushing it so hard and you're just totally exhausted. You get punished by running more. And then if you lose out of that next group and you're still the loser, you get to run an extra mile. And then he talks about there that beyond that, if you were in that final group of losers, you got two hours more of like grueling PT, you know, physical training beyond even that. But the winners got to move on. And so he was being reminded in this run that it pays to be a winner. Going back to the book, he says this. In July of 1990, I was the task unit commander for a SEAL detachment on a deployment to the Western Pacific. As part of the task unit, 
I had a boat detachment of two Sea Fox high-speed craft, a communications element, and a SEAL platoon. After 30 days of sailing across the Pacific, the five-ship amphibious ready group, of which we were a part, pulled into Subic Bay, Philippines. Within hours of docking, the 2,000 embarked Marines and 21 SEALs were allowed to go ashore on Liberty. The next morning, I received word that one of my SEALs had gotten into a bar fight and things had turned nasty. As it happened that same night, 22 Marines had gotten into an equal amount of trouble. At 0800 hours, I heard my name broadcast across the ship's intercom. Commander McRaven, report to the bridge. This was not a good sign. I knew that the Commodore, my boss, would be waiting to grill me. As I made my way from the berthing area up three flights of ladders to the bridge, I started to prepare my defense. Yes, my SEALs had gotten into trouble, but how did that compare to the 22 Marines who were equally egregious? Entering the bridge, I found Mike Comatose, the Commodore, sitting in his captain's chair. I approached the chair and came to a modified detention. Sir, you called for me? Comatose got down from the chair, and I could see the anger on his face. A Vietnam-era helo pilot, he was tactically brilliant, and over the course of the past 18 months, I had come to deeply respect him for his leadership of the amphibious ready group. To this day, I count Mike, is one of the finest leaders with whom I ever served. Only five foot five, he closed the distance between us and glared up at me just inches from my face. One of your SEALs got into a bar fight last night and beat up a couple of Marines. This is entirely unacceptable. Yes, sir, I completely agree, I started. And then I made a fatal mistake. But sir, I would also note that 22 Marines got in trouble last night. Before I could continue, Mike moved toe to toe his face now fully flushed with anger. They're young Marines, Bill, he said. I expect them to get into trouble. And then I was reminded why I was a Navy SEAL. But I hold you and your SEALs to a higher standard, and I expect you, as their leader, to do the same. Are we clear? I hold you and your SEALs to a higher standard, he said. Those words resonated in my mind for the rest of my career. Winners hold themselves to higher standards. In this story, Navy SEALs weren't comparing themselves to the Marines, at least not the Commodore. Their standards were to be much higher than the young Marines who were on leave that night. And so I just, I think about the bar that we have set. As Christian men, how often do we find ourselves comparing our actions to the world, for example. And we are saying, I know that there's a lot of people doing bad, but look at what those 22 other, you know, unbelievers are doing. Or sometimes we even do it comparing to other believers. And we say, you know what? I get up in the morning early and I read my Bible. And so, yeah, I mean, I screwed up, but at least I'm not screwing up like these other Christians. And we're setting the bar so low. I think in that case, the Commodore, or in our case, Jesus, would say to us, I'm not talking about them right now. I'm not talking to Christian men who aren't fighting to live a, a better life, a fuller life. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your standards. What are those? Are you okay with being mediocre? Or are you challenging yourself to be the man that God meant for you to be? Have you set the bar super low? Are you just coasting? Because here's the reality. You can get away with it. There's a lot of us who are coasting through. 
I think that we are saved, but the reality is we're out of the fight. We are not challenging ourselves to give a hundred percent for Christ. And so I think one of the things that, that God might remind you of today, as you hear the story about it pays to be a winner is I go back to the scriptures and Jesus says, I'm coming back and I'm bringing my rewards with me. We all will stand before the King of Kings one day and be accountable for the life that we lived. And in fact, we know that there is an eternal glory coming. And I believe that a lot of the parables and stories that we read in scripture point to the fact that some of us may be able to have maybe access to, to God or riches in heaven of some kind. I don't know what that means exactly, but we might be disappointed that we didn't give our very best. I think in heaven, it's going to pay to be a winner in the kingdom of God. Whatever that means, whatever it looks like, again, I don't know. And when I say riches, I don't mean like wealth. What I mean is the things that really matter in heaven. God is going to say, what did you do? And he will reward each of us according to our words and according to our deeds. And it will pay to be a winner. So hopefully that encourages us to fight and to be men of honor and discipline and strength and joy. It will be worth it in the end. Moving on to the last chapter for today, chapter 12. This one is so awesome too. And it certainly makes me think about our savior, Jesus Christ. The title of it is called a shepherd should smell like his sheep. Go into the book one more time. Admiral McRaven says this, I learned that every sailor had a story, a story about why they joined the Navy, a story about their family, a story about their hometown. And more than anything else, they had a story about the overseas deployments, the storm that almost capsized the ship, the near-death experience during an underway replenishment, the beautiful Polynesian princess they almost married, the card game where they took the entire pot, the dragon tattoo and how it ended up on the rear end, the crossing the equator ceremony, and the amazing sunsets at sea. Not only did every sailor have a story, but they all wanted to tell their stories and they wanted you to listen. You can learn a lot by listening to the people you work with. I also learned that sailors like Ricky wanted to be a part of something special. They took pride in their ship, and while they would complain incessantly about the chow, the long hours, the officers, and the other crewmen, they would defend the reputation of their ship to anyone who was not part of the crew. Knowing I would someday be wearing the inside bars, Ricky and his other crewmates made sure I understood what to expect. That dude, Ricky said, referring to a young lieutenant, he shows up every day and spends an hour in the boiler room with me. Now that's a good officer, bro. The XO, he's a hard ass when he has to be, but cuts some slack when he can. He's good too. The skipper rides us hard, but he always makes sure that we have the best spot on the pier. The officers they respected the most were the ones who showed up to the boiler room when it was 120 degrees, who got greasy and turned wrenches with them, who picked up a broom to help with the evening sweep down, who brought them water when they were painting the side of the ship, and who thanked them routinely for their efforts. But they also wanted an officer who made the tough decisions, held them accountable, worked hard, and above all else, they wanted an officer who valued them for the tough work they did. Finally, they wanted an officer they could be proud of, even if they didn't say it publicly. They wanted someone who was smart, athletic, looked good in their uniform, and didn't embarrass them on liberty by getting too drunk or rowdy. Three years later, I was commissioned an inside in the Navy and headed off to basic underwater demolition SEAL training called BUDS. The lessons from my time with Ricky were never far from my mind. 
share the misery, share the dangers, share the camaraderie, listen to their stories, and you will learn about your sailors, and you will learn what they expect from you. If, as a leader, you fail to spend time on the factory floor, you fail to walk around the cubicles, you fail to talk to the interns, you fail to have coffee with the junior employees, then you will fail to understand what's happening in your business. And as a leader, you will eventually just fail. It's not hard to take this leadership principle and think of Jesus, is it? Jesus, our great shepherd, was the one who came to earth. He took on a body of a human when he is God Almighty. He smelled like his sheep, didn't he? He became one of us. Clearly for me, there's no greater example of this leadership principle than Jesus. And yet we see, you know, what Admiral McRaven is saying too. And he's just saying, look, the great leaders are the ones that, that get down into the mud and the, the messiness. And he's never too above any of it. He'll get down in the boiler room when it's super hot and do some of the work with his men. He will be the kind of dad, you know, who will um, understand his kids' needs and spend time with them and get on the floor or get outside with them and spend time with them and make sure that they know that he cares. Whatever comes to mind for you, I think the main thing is that stay connected to your people. Who are the people in your life that you are leading? Do you smell like your sheep? As this story is talking about here, a shepherd should smell like his sheep, meaning he should be involved in the day-to-day -day things. He should never just be barking orders and can't relate. For you, maybe that's your children. It's getting involved at their level. It's knowing what interests them, not just what interests you. It's knowing what their pains are and what their fears are and connecting with them in those things. Maybe it's your wife and it's doing the same thing. It's connecting with her. It's doing what is important to her, not just what's important to you. It's figuring out what her love language is. It's speaking to her in ways that matter to her. Maybe for you, it's your employees. Maybe you're a boss or maybe it's just that you're a coworker or you're needing to get to know the people in the front office or the interns or whatever it is. Maybe for some of you, it's just learning to have fun with people and getting to know people from your church or from your fight club community. If you're part of our group or your small group or whatever it is, it's just, it's learning to be with people. It's learning to share in their misery, share in the fun and being there and being connected because a shepherd, a good leader, a good man should smell like his sheep. And so as we wrap up today, again, we're just kind of looking at these ideas here that we go back to the thought of why not me? The sua sponte, you want to be a great leader. Stop looking around for somebody else to do the, the dirty work. Stop looking around and assuming it's somebody else's responsibility. If you're going to be a man, then you do the hard work. Why not you? Why not me? remembering that daring greatly is, is important. And you're going to have to understand that there's risk and there will be failures, but who dares wins. But that also comes with being prepared, right? It's not just being daring, but it's also being prepared. And we remember in chapter nine that hope's not a strategy. We talk about that and just say, look, it isn't enough just to have good intentions. You've got to actually do the work. You've got to show up every day with a great attitude and great effort. And if you'll do that, then you'll get to where you want to go potentially. But you certainly won't if you just base your, your leadership or your life on hope. We also remember today as we go through this that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Things are going to fall apart. 
Things are going to be messy. There's going to be a fight. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And so just consider the scenarios ahead of time. Understand that it, it may not all work out just like you thought, but what will you do when trouble comes? Because no plan is going to survive first contact. So you've got to have backup plans and strategies. We got to remember that it pays to be a winner. You've got to hold yourself to a higher standard. We're not comparing our life to other people. We are trying to be men of God and we are being men that are challenging ourselves and challenging each other to a much higher standard of Christ. And it is hard, right? That's what it takes to win in life. And this one and the next one to come, it's going to take men of, of honor and discipline and strength and joy. And then lastly, again, we just remember that we should be as leaders, people who smell like our sheep. And so getting to people's level and really just caring for people, sharing in their misery, sharing in their fun, sharing in their lives, that's how we will lead and win in, in the end. So I love the wisdom of the bullfrog here. If you get a chance, make sure you listen to the previous episodes with this. We'll conclude with one more here coming soon, but be sure that you get the book. There's so many great stories here. Just want to challenge you there that these ideas of leadership principles will help you to be a better leader, help you to be a better man. And he reminds us that leadership can be simple, but it's never going to be easy. But in the end, it'll always be worth it. Hey guys, thanks so much for being here today and listening to the show. Please be sure to head over to the website at getinthefight.club. And before you go, if you haven't already, please subscribe click the like button and leave us a positive five-star review. It makes a huge difference whenever you do. Have a great day. Go get in the fight.